Well, good morning, Four Corners. We thank our God for the privilege that we have to gather in His name and worship Him. It's easy to take these weekly gatherings for granted, to uh, just sort of skip through it or be distracted through it. And we, we recognize as we've been singing these praises to God and praying, confessing our sins, as we have been even speaking the gospel into each other's lives as we've gathered, we are reminded that this is a joyous occasion, a time of celebration, also a time of of being sober-minded, a time of considering our sin. Blessed are those who mourn, Jesus says, those who consider the weight, reality of sin, and who die to sin daily by the Spirit. So we're always gathering with this kind of celebratory spirit, but also with this sober recognition that We're sinners saved by grace, and we need to be sanctified further by the Holy Spirit. So we're thankful that we have this time to gather. We get to hear his word because it's by the word that we are lifted up in our joy and by the word that we are convicted of our sins. And as Jesus says in John 17, by the word that we are sanctified, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. And so that's what this time of our service is about. It's another aspect of worship. So we haven't just done worship and singing. We're doing worship now through preaching and hearing preaching. Last week, we began our series on Paul's letter to the Romans. So you'll notice that the posters have changed. They, uh, the, the long-standing posters of Genesis have now shifted to Romans. And as I said last week, I've taken... Two of what I think are the main passages uh, in the book of Romans, in the letter of Romans, and put them up on the wall. And I had to shrink this one a little bit, chapter 8, verses 35 to 39. Really, that section begins, the logic Paul has there begins in verse 31, but we just couldn't fit all of that on, on the board. So if you want to see the beginning of Paul's logic to that passage, go there and look starting in verse 31. But we're now underway. This is the second week of this series on Romans. And this is the Jewish Roman citizen, Saul or Paul, writing around A.D. 57 from Corinth to the Christians in Rome. And the Christians in Rome are gathered in various house churches or apartment churches uh, that are collective. They have a kind of collective identity in a sense, but they really are churches meeting in different homes. So you'll notice in Romans 16, if you go there, the church who meets in their house. Greetings. Paul is giving those final greetings, and there are churches meeting in various homes, which would have looked different for different social strata in the city of Rome. House churches largely comprised of Gentiles or non-Jews. I, I, I realize sometimes uh, we use biblical language or Christian language jargon terms that mean absolutely nothing to someone who maybe is coming to church for the first time. So I say Gentiles, that just goes right over your head. Gentiles in the Bible essentially is just non-Jews. Most of us probably know that, but if you don't, that's what I'm referring to. These churches, these house churches in Rome, are largely comprised of non-Jews. But with some Jews, and all of them 
very much steeped in Judaism, in the Jewish scriptures. So the churches in Rome, these house churches, have as a background the Jewish scriptures. And that's the reason why Paul often will, will argue based on a knowledge of those Jewish scriptures. The church in Rome, probably founded uh, by those who left Jerusalem at Pentecost and went back to Rome. And so there was always a Jewish character to the church in Rome, though largely by this time, probably comprised largely of Gentiles. This is the Jewish Pharisee and persecutor of Christians turned apostle to the Gentiles, writing to Christians who fall under his apostolic ministry. Because Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles, those Largely Gentile people in Rome worshiping the Lord Jesus fall under the scope or the umbrella of Paul's larger apostolic ministry, though he has never visited them. So Paul knows a number of the Christians in Rome, but he's never visited the Christians in Rome. He did not plant the church in Rome, which is the case with so many of the churches we read about in Acts and uh, the other letters that Paul writes. These are churches that Paul planted and churches that he fed and sustained with trips there and with letters. Rome is different. He had never visited this place, these Christians. This is Paul explaining the gospel he preaches to a group that has heard many things about him and probably mixed. We talked about that this week in our gospel community group, that the, the information that these Christians have received about Paul is probably of a mixed nature. We know that it's probably largely positive based on the people he knows in Romans 16, but undoubtedly, given the objections that he treats throughout the letter, there are some false apostles, false teachers, opponents of Paul who have circulated various things about him that are derogatory in nature. And, and so Paul is writing to these Christians explaining the gospel he preaches. And that's one of the reasons why throughout he'll, he'll, he'll talk about my gospel. The gospel that he has been called to preach. These are Christians whose support Paul wants in a future missionary journey further west to Spain. We cannot say that Romans as a letter in the New Testament is merely a kind of covering letter for a mission to Spain. It's not merely just, hey guys, want to ask for your support so that I can dock in Rome and go further west to do missionary work in Spain. It would be pretty silly to think about such a letter like this being merely that. But that is a large part of Paul's purpose, is to unify this body around Paul's gospel, to explicate it clearly, and to get support for his preaching of it further west in Spain. We see this at the end of the letter, Romans 15. If you want to look at this briefly, Romans 15, verses 24 to 25. You say, well, where are you getting all this stuff about Spain? Well, it comes at the end. He says this, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. 
At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. So he's about to go to Jerusalem. And then he says in verse 28, When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. And so we know that that is a a large part of what Paul is doing. What Paul says in Romans is what they can expect he will be preaching if he happens to go to Spain. As we come as a church, Four Corners Church, as we come to the greatest and largest epistle of Paul, a book that we recognize, and we talked about this last week, a book that we recognize has had Uh, really an unprecedented impact on countless Christians throughout the history of the Christian church as we come to this letter here, the second sermon on it, how it has affected Christians for two millennia. I want to ask you this question. I don't know if you've thought much about this. Maybe, which is wonderful, you have your crossway uh, lined Uh, note-taking edition of Romans. I've seen some of those circulating around, and that's wonderful. Maybe you are committed, as after we talked last week, about about memorizing chunks of Romans. I just talked with Brittany Ryden, and she was talking about how the tweens are going to try to memorize Romans 8, so I've announced it now, so there's no turning back. (laughs) Sorry, Brittany. Uh, and And that's wonderful. That's wonderful. And maybe you, too, have your plans for how you're going to take notes or how you're going to memorize or whatever it is, how you're going to study this or that or read these or those books. But all of those little technical bits aside, let me ask this more general but also I think more penetrating question. What are you asking the Lord to do in your life through Romans? We know that God uses his word to change us, to transform us, to do great work in us. And we've seen that. I I remember when we were in the Sermon on the Mount and there were just some key moments going through that where people would come to me and say, this is what the Lord is doing or has done just right now through the preaching of this particular portion of Scripture, through this part of Matthew. This is what God has done through his word as it's been preached in corporate worship. And then throughout Genesis, as we've talked in our gospel community groups about the ways that God has shown himself faithful, the ways that we've grown in our trust in him, and how we've learned more about faith and God's redemptive plan and about Christ even there in the Old Testament. So what is it that you are asking and expecting the Lord to do in your life through Romans? Undoubtedly, God will do surprising things in our lives through Romans. But what are you asking him to do? We pray as a church that our time in Romans through it, that we would come to better know, trust, and treasure the gospel. A precise gospel. Not in a pedantic way, not in a way that that is just merely heady or academic, but a, a real deep understanding of what the gospel is. Not platitudes, not cliches, not slogans, 
but a real understanding of the contours of the Christian gospel, that we would know it. So much of Christianity today is anti-intellectual, anti-doctrinal. It's just a kind of, kind of vaporous sort of thing with no substance. That is so much of American evangelicalism is that. We pray that our time in Romans would give so much greater substance to our understanding of this Christian gospel. But not just that we would know it, but that we would trust it. That we would believe the gospel for our own sake. That we would believe the gospel for our own sins. That we would believe the gospel for our own salvation. Truly putting our faith in it rightly. And we pray that we would treasure it, that it would be the most precious thing on the planet, that the gospel would be in our waking and in our sleeping, in our leisure and in our work, in our parenting and our husbanding and being wives, that everything we do, we would treasure this precious Christian gospel. That's a place to start. We also pray that we would spread the gospel. And here's the point. Because we've come to believe in its power. Here's the thing. The reason that we don't spread the gospel. There are many reasons. But I'm convinced that at the core of it. At the core of our lack of evangelism. Our lack of evangelistic witness. Is this truth. We really don't believe in its power. I'm convinced that so many churches, so many pastors don't believe in its power because they don't preach it. People don't believe in the power of the Bible and therefore they must replace that with the power of man's innovations. Man's gimmicks, man's innovations then become the powerful mechanism and means by which lives are changed. People come to Jesus. Churches are filled. This is an epidemic, far worse than the health epidemic we see growing around us. It's sad to know that people have left and said, we've gone here to this town, and we have not been able to find a single church in which the sermons are based on the Bible. These are Christian churches We recognize that at the heart of all of this is unbelief, a lack of faith in the power, the real power of Scripture, and particularly the scriptural gospel, which is at its core. You know Paul's words probably in chapter 1, verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, Are we ashamed of the gospel? Then he says, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. You know, we will not share Jesus and the scriptural gospel with someone we're talking to if we really don't believe that in that sharing that the Holy Spirit can take that gospel and can radically transform that heart. No matter how far that person is away from Christ. No matter how far that person is away from any understanding of Christianity. So we pray. 
that as a church, we would believe more in the power of this gospel. The first major section to consider in the epistle of Romans, this letter written by Paul, is the greeting. So you'll notice if you look in your Bible that the first section is verses 1 to 7. And that really is just Paul's greeting. But Paul's greetings aren't like other people's greetings in letters. You will see just by reading through it all that Paul includes in this. And as as many have rightly noted, understanding the greeting, you begin to understand much of what Paul's going to talk about in his letter. So that's great. We go through the greeting slowly and we begin to see unfolding before our eyes what is going to be found in this epistle. You could divide the greeting really up into three main sections. The man, the message, and the mission. And that's what we're going to be looking at as we go through these first seven verses. Last week, we started looking at the man, the man behind the letter. And we'll finish that up this week. So last week and this week, the man behind the letter. So you can go ahead and put up that first slide or that first part of the only slide. (laughs) The man behind the letter, part two. We're still looking in verse one where Paul introduces himself with three parallel and interrelated phrases. And these are the three phrases that Paul uses to describe himself. First, a servant or a slave of Christ Jesus. Then called to be an apostle. And thirdly, set apart for the gospel of God. That's how Paul wants to introduce himself to these Christians he's writing to. He is identifying himself in terms of three things. And you see these up here on the slide. Three things. Ownership. He's owned by Christ, a servant slave of Christ Jesus. Office, apostle, and his objective. And we'll talk about that at the end today. So today what we'll do is we'll cover the last two, office and objective. Last week we covered ownership. And so if you, if you missed last week, you can always go and listen to the podcast. There we'll, we talk about who Paul is. So we introduce Paul because that's the first word of the letter, Paul. And then we get this phrase, a slave or servant of Christ Jesus. We talked about that last week. So if you're interested in kind of getting off the ground there, please go and listen to that. This week we'll move to the latter two. So if you would please stand with me now as we read God's word. Romans chapter 1, verses 1 to 7. This is God's word. It is perfect and profitable for his people. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you, who were called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome 
who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You can go ahead and be seated. That is one glorious sentence, rivaled only perhaps by Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 14. Those are kind of in the running for the longest, most glorious sentence of Paul. But there you go. One sentence introducing himself, his purposes, his audience. And that's what we'll be spending our time in in the next several weeks. So let's pray and ask the Lord for his blessing today. Father, we thank you for the epistle to the Romans. Lord, we don't want to have a canon within a canon. We don't want to overinflate Romans' importance at the expense of all the rest of Scripture. We thank you for every word which comes from the mouth of God. From Genesis to Revelation, every book written as men were carried along by the Holy Spirit, inspired by God, we worship you as we come and know you through the sacred scriptures. And yet, Father, we recognize that in redemptive history, this particular letter written to this particular group of Christians in the most significant city in the ancient world has had really an unprecedented impact on your people. We thank you that we get the privilege to sit under it, to walk through it, Lord, we pray that you would help us today to understand more of what's here, that, that even as we crawl through these opening phrases and sentences, Lord, that you would use that to strengthen us and that you would use that to help us lay some foundation work for our understanding of the gospel that will be filled out more and more as we go through the letter. Lord, we thank you for Four Corners Church and, and how you have sustained it, these uh, over 10 years now, you've sustained this church as a church that loves your word and since the beginning has, has desired to, to preach through in corporate worship systematically, expositionally through your word. God, we pray that our confidence in the power of your word and the power of your gospel would continue. We pray that you would protect us from the silly trends that so captivate the hearts and minds of those who lead churches throughout our land. We pray, Father, that our hearts would be bent towards you, that we would desire to know nothing more but Christ and him crucified, and to know Christ and him crucified through your word. Lord, we ask that you'd bless this time today, that you'd build us up, and God, we pray that we would leave here changed. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've looked already at ownership, and now we come to office. We were first introduced to Paul as a servant or slave of Christ Jesus. I said last week that this really denotes two things. First is the, just basically the humility of it. The humility of the language, a slave of Christ Jesus. This is the first way that Paul chooses to introduce himself. And what it tells us is that Paul understood that he was owned by another. And here's the wonderful thing about, about servitude, about being a bondservant to Christ, 
is that when you are owned by another, self is replaced. The worship of self, the directives of self, define our society. It defines the lost heart. It defines the heart of every child born into the world. All of those children back there right now, and all of us, since we were born into the world, we've been looking out for self. We love self. We feed self. We care for self at the expense of all others, and especially at the expense of the glory of God. We do this because we were born in Adam. We, like Adam and Eve, and all those since them, worship the God of self. I've often said that the pro-abortion movement is a bowing down to the God of self in the most explicit terms. We see it all around us, not just in that particular cultural wickedness, but also we see it in the LGBTQ movement. That the the self-expression, the God of, of identifying self and expressing self as one so chooses. We see it in the headlines. We see it in our own hearts. We see it in our precious children. And what Christianity does is it replaces self with Christ Jesus. We saw that last week with Paul. Self-renunciation, being owned by Christ. So it is a phrase of humility, but it's also a phrase of continuity. It reminds us of this title in the Old Testament, the servant of Yahweh. And so Paul here is not only saying, look, I am nothing. I have renounced self and I now belong to Christ. He's also saying, what I am doing, I am doing in continuity, in fulfillment of the Old Testament, as the prophets and many were referred to as servants of Yahweh, servants of the Lord. Paul's also saying Christ is the Lord. All of this is packed into just that very first phrase. But I won't re-preach that again. Now, in the second phrase, as we move to it, Paul describes himself as one who is called to be an apostle or a called apostle. This is a move from the general to the specific. From a general servant of the Lord, that's very general language, a servant of the Lord, to one who holds a particular office. So this is not just general, Paul serves the Lord, but it is a very specific, he serves the Lord in this specific way. He holds the office and the title of apostle. This is also a move from commonality to uniqueness. All Christians, we talked about this, I hope you talked about this this week in your gospel community group, all Christians can say with Paul, I am a servant or slave of Christ Jesus. You don't have that Old Testament continuity there, but certainly throughout the New Testament, we are referred to in various places as servants of Christ Jesus. We've been purchased by Christ. Christ owns us. But none of us can say with Paul, I am an apostle. Contrary 
to some in charismatic circles who style themselves, notice Paul says, called by another. They call themselves apostles. No. None of us can say with Paul that we are an apostle. This is something very specific and unique. So what is it? What is an apostle? And I would just ask you to bear with me this morning because really there's no way that I can explain this without getting down in the weeds. And so we're gonna have to go into the weeds. What is an apostle? To what office is Paul referring? Well, the first thing that we need to know, let's just start very basically with this idea of of an apostle. The first thing we need to know is that apostle is an office or a title that was instituted by none other than Jesus Christ himself. So Jesus instituted this particular office and gave this particular title of apostle. We see this in Mark chapter 3, verse 14. Listen to the language. And he appointed 12. And then you have parentheses there in your English Bible. And he appointed 12, parentheses, whom he also named apostles. So there Mark, in writing his gospel, is explaining that these 12 whom Jesus called to himself. Jesus had many disciples. There were many learners, which is what disciple means. Many learners who were surrounding Jesus at all times. The 500 who were gathered probably uh, there as, as Trey was preaching uh, on the Great Commission, uh, probably the time when there are hundreds of people there. Paul refers to it in 1 Corinthians 15. 500 people saw Jesus. These are generally disciples. But what Jesus does in the Gospels is he chooses 12 men to be specifically his disciples, and he calls them apostles. It's a very specific title. There's much that could be said about this title, this office, but I want to try to summarize it with four words. So here we go. We're going into the weeds now. Four words to summarize what an apostle is. And here they are. Election, commission, representation, and proclamation. So I want to go through each of those briefly. First, election. Most fundamentally, an apostle is one who is chosen for this office by Jesus. Jesus chooses who is an apostle. That is why Paul refers to himself here as called to be an apostle. You don't just get to go... uh, Think of yourself as someone who is uniquely gifted and maybe uniquely called. And you get, as we, as we have today in many circles, you just, you know, you get a little bit of a following. And, and, and maybe people like to listen to your sermons. And, and maybe you, you, you're a charismatic individual, whatever. And then you, you begin to say, you know what? I'm an apostle. Apostle John. Or apostle whatever. No. You must be chosen, called to be this specifically by Jesus. One is not self-appointed or appointed by men, but rather appointed by Christ himself. Mark 3.13 makes this clear. So right before Mark 3.14, which says he called these disciples apostles, we read in the previous verse, and he went up on the mountain and called to him, listen to this language, those whom he desired. 
and they came to him. Why are Peter and Andrew and James and John and Bartholomew and Thaddeus, all, why are these guys disciples? Because Jesus desired for them to be so. They were elected by God. You did not choose me, Jesus told them, but I chose you. It was Jesus who walked along the Sea of Galilee. It was Jesus who called them, come and follow me, Matthew, Levi, tax collector. Come and follow me. Fishermen, come and follow me. The calling of these men is premised on the desire of Christ. Galatians 1.1, Paul makes this clear about his own apostleship. Paul, an apostle, listen, not from men nor through man, that includes himself, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. And then Acts 26.16, but rise and stand upon your feet, Jesus says to Paul. As Trey read earlier, this is where Paul is recounting what Jesus said to him in his post-ascension appearance. The resurrected Christ appears to Paul and he says this to him. Stand upon your feet for I have appeared to you for this purpose to appoint you. Chosen. Elected by Jesus. So just get that firmly in place. Now secondly, we have Commission. So first election, now second commission. In connection with the etymology of the word, if you look at the word, apostle in Greek, connected to the etymology of that word, an apostle is basically, at its most basic level, what does it mean? What does the word mean? You can't just take from the word and know what the word means. You have to look at its usage. But if you take the word and just look at what it means and how it's constructed, an apostle is basically one who is sent out on a mission. A messenger, one who is commissioned by Jesus himself. Once again, Mark 3, 14. And he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles. And just listen to this. So that they might be with him and he might send them out. John 20, 21, Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Acts 26, 17, Paul, once again, referring to his own calling, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles, Jesus says he will do, to whom I am sending you. So it's very clear that part of what it means to be an apostle, in addition to being chosen or called by Christ himself, is that you're sent out by Christ himself. Third, representation. So election, commission, and now representation. As these men are sent out, they go in Christ's name and with his power. So Paul will hear these words in Acts 9.15, or rather Ananias will be told. Remember, Paul loses his sight on the road to Damascus. God appears to Ananias and says, I want you to receive Paul. And Ananias is like, whoa, 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 hold on. This guy, Saul, Paul, has been killing Christians. And Jesus says to Ananias these words. He is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. To carry my name. 
An apostle is one who bears the name of Christ, represents Christ to the world. Why do I say with his power? 2 Corinthians 12, 12, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you, Paul says, with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. Now notice this, this is very important for contemporary discussions within Christianity. And I know we we may have differences of opinion on these sorts of questions, but I at least want you to notice this one detail. And that is, Paul is saying, look, I am a validated apostle. And how is one to know that I am a validated apostle? He says, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you, signs and wonders and mighty works. So here's what we can conclude from that. Signs and wonders are directly connected to the apostles themselves. That these signs and wonders, explicitly Paul says, that characterize the New Testament period. The raising of the dead. John and Peter there standing next to the lame man. I have no money to give to you, but this I have in the name of Jesus Christ. Stand up and walk. These these signs and wonders and powerful works that happen in the New Testament period are associated, Paul says here specifically, directly with the validation of an apostolic ministry. So whatever we are to say of signs and wonders today, which God can do, this particular type of signs and wonders ministry is apostolic in nature. Regardless of what you've seen on TV. Used by God to validate the apostolic ministry. Fourth, proclamation. So we have election, commission, representation, and then finally, proclamation. As those who had been chosen and sent out by Christ to represent him, they had the responsibility and authority of bearing witness to his resurrection and teaching about him and his gospel. That's probably the one thing you associate most with the apostles, right? Is their teaching. 1 Corinthians 9.1, am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? How is it that apostles are able to go out and teach about Christ? Well, at the heart, at the heart of their proclamation, at the heart of the apostolic message, the apostolic doctrine and teaching is this message. Christ is risen. That was what apostles were. They were witnesses of Christ. Go back and read at the beginning of Acts when Judas is replaced. That's one of the key issues is they had to have seen the risen Christ. That's the beginning of all Christian proclamation. That's the beginning of the gospel message. Christ is risen. And all that flows out of that. So, we see that proclamation of this And other teachings, Acts 2.42, the Christians devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. You wonder what the true church looks like today. How do you know? I mean, how do you know so many churches, so many denominations? I mean, what's a true church really? Well, what did the, the first Christians do? Very basic. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. 
So what do Christians today who are in true churches do? Devote themselves to the apostles' teaching. All of Scripture elucidated through Christ and his gospel. And this witnessing and authoritative teaching, which was accompanied by validating signs and wonders, provided the church with its foundation. So Ephesians 2.20, Paul says the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And there, prophets, not meaning Old Testament prophets, but New Testament prophets, those having the gift of prophecy at the time of the apostles who are doing, uh, declaring these things that are happening in the time of the inbreaking of the kingdom with the church. The apostles and prophets there laid the foundation for the church, which will go on for millennia. And at the heart of that foundation laying work was the writing of the inspired scriptures. The inscripturation of Christ's teaching through the Holy Spirit. So I want to take you on a little bit of a journey here because I want you to understand why it is that we read Romans and we say, thus says the Lord. Right? I'm talking a lot about Paul because I want you to understand the historical framework. But you've recently heard Andy Stanley and other people talk about, thus saith Paul, thus saith John, thus saith whoever else. But when we open up the scriptures, it's thus saith Paul the Lord, from Genesis all the way to Revelation. Why is it that we say that, particularly with the New Testament writers? We say it with all of Scripture, but I want here to show how the New Testament really came to be. John 14, 26, Jesus said, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So Jesus says, disciples, apostles, after I leave, the Holy Spirit is going to have this very specific ministry whereby he's going to come to you and he's going to bring remembrance to you and he's going to tell you what you need to speak, write, etc., what you need to proclaim. John 16, 13, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. And then we get Peter, referring to Paul's letters as scripture. What an amazing thing. Sometimes you might think, well, the scriptures, you know, in the New Testament time are really the Old Testament writings. But no, the apostles actually refer to each other's writings as scripture. That means in line with the Old Testament, the same caliber as Old Testament scriptures. Peter, in 2 Peter 3.16, says that some twist Paul's writings as they do the other scriptures. So we've been in the weeds a little bit. Now you can kind of come up, well, sort of, from those weeds. Here, with this self-designation of called apostle, called to be an apostle, Paul is declaring his authority to speak for Christ. But a few things must be remembered about this authority. Lest you think, well, Paul, he's just beating his chest here. You know, I, I am an apostle. Listen to me. This is an authoritarian kind of thing. Remember these points. 
This is a derivative authority. What has he already said? Slave of Christ. It's a derivative authority. He's an apostle. He's been sent out by Christ. It's not intrinsic. It's derivative. Owned by another to represent another. This is a grace. Paul will often say, God graced me by calling me to be an apostle. I'm the least of the apostles. I did not deserve it. I persecuted Christ's church, but in his sovereign will and goodness and grace, he called me to be an apostle. Everything packed in that word. When Paul says apostle, we might hear authoritarian, but what we should hear is grace, grace, grace. Because that's what Paul thought when he said that word. And remember this too, finally. It is an authority under the cross. It's interesting, in 1 Corinthians 4.13, Paul says that the apostles have become like the scum of the world. That's interesting. You know, us, we're living 2,000 years later. We tend to look back with all of church history. Maybe you've been to Rome, you've been to the Vatican, and you see these, these brilliant majestic marble statues of the apostles, you know, in all of their splendor and glory. These are Christ's apostles. And you see them in stained glass windows. And we look backwards and we see them in in that kind of earthly glory. That was not the case. Know this. Not the case in the first century at all. By no stretch of the imagination. Paul in 1 Corinthians 4 Starting, I think, around verse 9, he begins to explain how the apostles have become a laughing stock to the world. You think Christians were thought low of in the first century? You think Christians were seen as, as these, these weird, marginalized people? How much more the apostles? The scum of the world. And that reminds us that when Paul says this word, he is not just stating an authority, he's stating his cross-bearing authority. He is putting forward an authority that is under the cross of Jesus. And what that tells us, reminds us, fellow elders, deacons, gospel community group leaders, ministry leaders, whoever has any kind of position or authority within a local church, reminds us of this. All authority or leadership, every position, every title in the church must be understood under the cross. Always. It is a cross-bearing authority. And indeed, throughout history, we have seen those who lead Christ's people oftentimes must bear things that others don't bear. It is a cross-bearing authority. So before you jump up and down and say, I want to be an elder, or I want to be this, or I want to be that, or I want to go to seminary and be ordained and become a pastor, or I want to go out into the mission field, become a missionary, recognize this, what you're signing up for. I want to note one major implication of all that's been said before we move on. This concept of apostleship and the nature of apostleship helps us understand and explain Scripture to the unbeliever. Think about it this way. Maybe you've been stumped time and time again with with non-Christians who've come up to you and said, I don't understand. I mean, the Bible's just a bunch of stuff written by men. And they just don't get it. They don't understand it. They see it as a kind of evolutionary model that, you know, there was Jesus and then there were a bunch of followers of Jesus and at some point some of them decided to sit down and put pen to paper or pen to papyrus and write something down about this 
Jesus. And then we got development of doctrine, and, and of course the Trinity got invented by human beings, and then it just kind of developed from there. This is the old Da Vinci Code model, or oftentimes what you'll find in a university classroom, or one of those awful National Geographic or uh, documentary episodes that you'll see on Jesus and the earliest Christians. This is the idea. Key, key to explaining it is the notion of apostleship. If we don't understand apostleship, we'll never begin to understand where the New Testament came from and why it is we open up Romans and we say, thus says the Lord. We love Paul, but thus says the Lord. And we have a reason for that because we understand what an apostle is and all that that entails. Finally, we go to objective number three. Objective. We've looked at ownership, servant of Christ Jesus, office, called to be an apostle, and now finally we go to objective here at the end of verse 1. So far, Paul has used prophetic language to describe himself. Servant, that's prophetic language. Called, it's a prophetic idea. The prophets are called. Even Abraham, Moses called. Both point back to Old Testament prophets who were servants of the Lord and who were called to declare God's truth. This continues in the beginning of his final description. The first thing Paul has to say about himself at the very end is set apart or separated. It points back to Jeremiah 1.5. Maybe you, I know you've probably heard this one before because this, one is off, this, this verse is often quoted for pro-life purposes, and rightly so. But it has to do with Jeremiah's call to be a prophet. Jeremiah 1.5, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated you I appointed you a prophet to the nations. This is the language of Jeremiah. And this is how Paul understood his own calling. I can't help but to think that as Paul describes himself, he's thinking of something like what happened to Jeremiah. So he says, Galatians 1.15, But when he who had set me apart before I was born, born, see the language like Jeremiah, before I was born, and who called me by his grace. And so once again, this is filled with Old Testament imagery. That's the main point I want you to get. Before we move on past Paul, this is all meant to connect the two testaments. It's all meant to say, look, God's been doing an amazing thing since Genesis, and now he, is, he has fulfilled that thing in Christ. Servant called, set apart, all prophetic in nature. This is the language of holiness, set apart. It's the language of sanctification, being set apart for a sacred purpose. Leviticus 20, 26. You shall be holy to me, God says to Israel, for I the Lord am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. Now, this same verb that Paul uses in the Greek Old Testament for being set apart or being separated is what is used for the firstborn. You read about that in Exodus. For the first fruits, for the Levites, for the nation as a whole. This is the language of, of God coming to something and taking some of it and setting it apart as sacred, 
as holy. It's being sanctified. And by the way, that's what the word sanctification means. It means being set apart. Increasingly set apart. So what is this sacred purpose as we close this morning? No more wonderful place to close. What is this sacred purpose to which Paul has been set apart? Answer the gospel of God. That's what he says. One commentator, Douglas Moo, describes Paul's mindset this way. Paul is claiming that his life is totally dedicated to God's act of salvation in Christ. Here's another quote for you from John Murray. I like the way he describes it. All bonds of interest, listen to this, all bonds of interest and attachment, alien or extraneous to the promotion of the gospel, have been cut asunder, and he is set apart by the investment of all his interests and ambitions in the cause of the gospel. Paul became through and through, from the bone marrow to the epidermis, all the way a gospel man in every respect. And this is why Paul says in Galatians 1.15 that his being set apart and called by Jesus was in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. This was Paul's life. Every moment of his life devoted exclusively just as the, the vessels in the temple, they sat there and they were devoted exclusively to no other purpose than the worship of God there in the temple. So too with Paul in the gospel. Romans eleven thirteen. I am an apostle to the Gentiles. That was his food. That was his breath. That was every waking moment of his life. So let's reflect on that for just a moment. None of us is separated to the gospel of God like Paul. So let's, just, let's not just strip this of its historical import Let's not just say, oh, we're like Paul. No, there's something unique here with regard to Paul and his apostleship to the Gentiles. He, in a very unique way and in a comprehensive way, was set apart to the gospel. But we must reflect on this for our own lives. What would it look like for you to have this single-minded devotion to Christ? 1 Corinthians 7 Paul talks about people who have a spouse. And he says, look, you know, I think it would be great if you didn't remarry. Speaking to those who, uh, who someone, uh, the spouse has passed away. Or, or speaking to virgins who've been set aside for that, for, for a spouse. So I think it would be better if you did not marry. But if you do, that is okay. Why? Why is singleness held up by Paul? as something to be potentially embraced and desired, if that's the gifting that God has given you? Because in that form of life, one can be exclusively devoted to this very work. And as much as we want to say, yes, being a husband and a wife is gospel work, and being a parent is gospel work, we cannot read 1 Corinthians 7 
and just squish it down like that. Paul is saying that there is a, a call to singleness wherein a person is able to devote himself or herself to the gospel in a very unique way. Maybe that's you. You ever thought about that? Single person here at Four Corners, you ever thought that maybe God has called you to singleness? In a church filled with young couples and many multiplying children? Maybe God has not called you to that. And that's okay. Go read 1 Corinthians 7 and think Paul 1 verse 1 in Romans. What could God do through you if you devoted your life exclusively to this gospel? But for those of us who are married with children, the question is the same. What would it look like for you in all that you do and are to be single-mindedly devoted to Christ and His gospel. So what is the gospel? Well, we're certainly not going to answer that question right here at the end of this sermon. That will be the topic we take up in the next few verses next week. And indeed, in the whole letter, we're going to spend... I don't know how long, but we're going to spend a while answering that question. There's much to say, and the gospel can be, I don't want to say, the gospel's so complex that you need years and years. No, no, the gospel can be stated succinctly and clearly in many, many different ways and from many different angles. As we think about God creating man, man has sinned, he has sent Christ, and Christ becomes the means of salvation for those who believe. He is God's Lamb, who takes away the sins of his people for his eternal glory and our eternal good. What is the gospel here, the end of verse 1? Well, we get a little bit of information. Let me say it this way, it is the good news from God. Before we get into any further description of the gospel, which we're going to hit in chapter, I mean in verse 2, Right now, we can at the very least say that it is good news and it is from God. How do we know it's good news? Because that's what gospel means. Gospel means good news. It comes out of the Old Testament expectation of God's salvation in history. Why is it good? Acts 20, 24, because it is the gospel of the grace of God. None of us deserves, not a single one of us deserves life. We deserve condemnation. That's why Paul at the beginning of chapter 8 says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's really good news because the truth is, as he says in Romans 3, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. There's no one who fears God. Romans 3, 18. So we recognize that we're all condemned. We don't deserve anything. You can never climb the ladder. You can never work your way. Whatever analogy or metaphor you want to use, it's not happening. We need God's grace, his unmerited favor, his gift. That is why the good news is so good. Because of what it gives us and because we don't deserve it. So let me just ask, is it good to you? It is good news, but have you forgotten how good it is? Life's busy. Oh, there's so many pleasures of this life to pursue, right? So many things that distract us 
So many burdens to bear. But the good news has come to God's people in Christ. Have you forgotten how wonderfully sweet the good news is that it is in fact good, that it is in fact joyous, and it should fill our lives with joy. It's one of the reasons why Paul in Ephesians 5, 18, when he says be filled with the Spirit, what does that mean? Well, you know, people interpret that in all sorts of ecstatic ways. It doesn't mean you jump up and down. It doesn't mean that you have to raise your hand when you sing. It doesn't mean that you, you rehearse repetitive choruses over and over and over again until you start weeping. It doesn't mean any of those things. It means what Paul describes there in chapter 5, verse 18, that our hearts are filled with this thankfulness to God in Christ, singing and making melody to the Lord in our hearts because the good news is good. Joyous. It's the source of joy. Is it the source of joy for you that God intends it to be? May this also be your prayer. God, help me to rejoice in the gospel. Help me find joy moment by moment in the gospel. It's the only way James chapter 1 makes any sense. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you experience various kinds of trials. Because the gospel is good. This good news is not from man or about man, but of God. It's not the good news that we can save ourselves. It's not the good news that God swung a door open and we can walk through it if only we'll listen. It's the good news that God graciously enters history, and radically transforms wicked sinners like us. That's the good news. And it is about the Lord God. It's about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He has fulfilled his promises. When we say good news, may we hear God's promises to Abraham in our ears that through his offspring, all the families of the earth would be blessed. If Genesis introduced us to the God of the Bible, Romans introduces us to his greatest work. Salvation of sinners through Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Father, we humbly come before you thanking you for how Paul identifies himself here in this epistle. Thank you for reminding us of the nature of the apostolic ministry. Thank you for reminding us here too about the nature of the Christian life. That when we look at Paul, we see what it means to be a Christian. But we also see what the entire infrastructure of Christianity is built upon. The foundation of the apostles and prophets. Lord, so much here to consider. We praise you for it. Would our hearts sing with joy because the gospel is indeed for us functionally, not just nominally, but truly good news. In Jesus' name.